Hey guys, good morning. It's nice to be with you. Uh, oh man, here they come. I was warned before the church started this morning about the airplanes, and then I was warned doubly about not making predictable jokes about the airplanes. So this is not one of those. This is not a joke about the airplanes. This is just a, uh, my acknowledgement of the fact that um, my ADD is making it very difficult to get through these teachings. It's not only, you know, it's loud, blah, 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 it's loud, but they, they travel right through these windows right here. It's everything I have. It takes everything in my power not to stop what I'm doing. I just want you guys to admire that as we go forward. Every time, don't you be distracted, but admire it. Uh, like Evan said, before I found my way to you guys this morning, once upon a time anyway, years ago, I was an itinerant musician. Musicians of the traveling variety tend to carry around a lot of weird stories, most of them embellished, including mine. But maybe you can relate to this one. We're going to find out. Maybe, if you're anything like me, then you know about the occasional head injury. And maybe you have, like I did, pressed a towel to your bleeding head in the darkened backseat of a 15-passenger van. The, uh, the, the sky beyond your window, a star-speckled canopy, a velvety blue-black, and maybe you couldn't keep the pressure properly applied either, bouncing around on the bench seat as the van capers over the, the craggy, pockmarked asphalt of another Corn Belt Highway in America's rural Midwest. Because when you, when you spend months of your life on the road, the days and weeks blur together. So you ask yourself questions like, where are we, Illinois, Indiana? Aren't there cornfields in Iowa? And the headache probably doesn't help. And I'd somehow struck myself in the forehead with a microphone like this one during that particular evening's performance. You don't plan injuries like these. They just sort of happen. And you show up to another local dive. You unload all your guitars and drums and amplifiers, a mess of wires and glowing tubes and circuit boards, and you wait around all afternoon and evening. You play music for just a little while, and then you pack it all up, and you head for the next city. But if you're me, then you're also constantly low on cash because you survive on the sum total of $5 a day. That part is not hyperbole. $5 a day, no more, no less. So maybe when your salary is a $5 per diem, you get creative. You learn things like uh, cheap pasta, is a dollar a box, and you can get a, a can of off-brand marinara, the kind that comes in the big aluminum cylinder for 89 cents. And you can sustain yourself for weeks on peanut butter sandwiches for mere nickels and dimes. And when surviving on $5 a day, $35 a week for four to six weeks straight, eight months out of the year, you also learn to bypass hotels. Hotels are expensive. I don't know if you know this about hotels. Someone will usually let you sleep on their floor if you ask nicely. And you keep at it long enough, you learn a few things about sleeping on floors, like avoiding crowded, roommate-overloaded bachelor pads, where food and space are likely in short supply, big boarding houses rented by a dozen energetic 20-somethings are a last resort when you're traveling around. And sure, they may have video games, they'll tell you about the video games, and good attitudes, but the place will likely be a mess, and it will probably smell, especially if the 20-somethings are guys. And the 20-somethings will want to stay up all night, and you have to get to Iowa or Nebraska or wherever the heck you're going tomorrow. So no, when panhandling for a free floor on which to sleep, you prioritize the suburban family home.
You look for the cool parents who, who brought their kids and their kids' friends to the show. The out-of-place looking 40-somethings in band t-shirts, which I have become. Because uh, the suburban family home is clean, and, and there's food there. And the suburban family home has washed sheets and a spare room or two and air conditioning. That's important. The suburban family home has paid its cable bill. So when the excited 20-somethings tell you about their very cool apartment in PlayStation 2, you say, let me ask the other guys. I'm not sure what our plan is just yet. And then you keep looking for the suburban family home. Now, <laughs> on this particular night, the one I mentioned earlier with the head injury, it was the suburban family home to which we were en route as I watched the endless wallpaper of cornfields spool out in either direction from the van's window, pressing the towel against my forehead to stop the bleeding. And when we arrived, the family led us up the steps to the night's accommodations, and we went galumphing in, you know, more than a half dozen of us, sweat-streaked and stinking, as another mom and dad offered us a smiling tour of the guest rooms, saying, help yourself to whatever is in the fridge. And we made with the pleasantries. We respectfully declined. Oh, no, thank you. We couldn't. You're too kind. Because what we really want to happen is we want to be left alone with the cabinets and refrigerators to shamelessly pillage the cereal and potato chips and fruit roll-ups. But on this particular night, I stepped into the family room and stopped. This is a true story. There in the corner, across from the couch, stood a giant golden harp. It must have been uh, six feet tall, a great golden column attached to a sliding arch fixed with gossamer-looking strings that caught the light enormous and imposing and alien-looking, maybe the only real-life harp I have ever seen. So I ask, what's with the harp? And the parents suddenly beam. Some secret knowledge passes between them as they summon their teenage daughter into the room. She plays, they say, barely able to contain their pride over the harpist. Would you like to hear her play? And I said that I would, which was true. Assuming that the young lady might protest, but she smiles and she nods and she moved with confidence to the instruments. She came alive as she went. And she lifted her hands and with a series of deft, elegant movements, music issues from the harp and fills the suburban family home. Beautiful, otherworldly music. And I sat there listening, pressing a fresh square of gauze against my forehead. And then my traveling companions, one by one, they stumble into the living room and become similarly transfixed, a troop of wide-eyed ragamuffins watching this thing happen. It wasn't the uh, musicianship that was so amazing. We were all musicians. It wasn't the giftedness per se. Would you even recognize a harp prodigy if you heard one? Some of our friends were incredibly gifted players, so it wasn't that necessarily. It was, I think, what all of us knew must have been the kind of lonely dedication necessary to actually get good at playing the harp. Who plays the harp? <laughs> and many years after that night, I was haunted by the sound of that harp without remembering its song specifically. I don't remember that home exactly or the face of the young lady who played the harp, but, but I remembered the practice precision with which she took to one string and then another and commanding melody from this ancient-looking golden monolith. There was 
truth in the harp waiting to be summoned with only the flesh and bone of one player's fingers, any player who knew how to do it. But the harp would not yield mastery at, you know, the behest of my simple, inelegant want. I can't play it just because I'd like to. I had dedicated no blood or sweat to such knowledge, and so I had none. I could sit there, I'm assuming, and I could pluck at the strings, and maybe I could even find an innocent, you know, row, row, row your boat kind of thing, a childlike melody in its curious apparatus. But I could not wield the instrument in such a way as to pour from it transfixing ethereal song that would spill down over my lap and flood the living room of the suburban family home traveling up the walls cresting and colliding overhead like a a chorus of angels harmonizing their approval of great glorious dedication and discipline if you want to play the harp you've got to stick with it even and especially when the journey gets tough and when you feel lonely and when you start to wonder if it's worth it at all Again, my name is Josh. I am a pastor at a church called Van City in Vancouver, Washington. And I'm a Christian, which feels like a weird thing to say after I'm already up here. Uh, I am a Christian. And, and just listen to me own that term. That's twice I've said it already. I realize this is a uh, culturally confusing and politicized word, Christian. But heck, these days I like it. There was a time when, you know, like many of my fragile generation, I uh, wanted to distance myself from the ugly American connotations ferried on the back of the term Christian. So I used things or terms like Jesus follower instead, which is also a great, accurate term. But, and this may surprise you, Park Hill, since we don't know each other that well, I am at heart uh, a contrarian something of a provocateur, I'm told. So I enjoy seeing people screw up their faces as if biting a lemon when I use the word Christian, especially where I live in the Pacific Northwest. So I'll be at a checkout in Portland, Oregon. And the clerk will ask, you know, trying to populate those two minutes that would be otherwise silent, how's your day going? And I'll say, pretty good. I just finished work. And the clerk will say, oh, yeah, what do you do? That's what you're supposed to say when someone mentions work. And then I'll say, I'm the pastor of a church. And they kind of recoil from both of those words. Let's say, ooh, a church, they ask. Audibly nervous. This is true. What kind of church? And then they try to answer for me so they can feel better. They say, is it some kind of, you know, Unitarian, New Age, progressive, spiritual, Buddhist infusion, multi-religious identity safe space? And I say, no, none of the above. And then I hit them with the horrifying word, it's Christian. That's right, Jesus, the Bible, the whole thing. And I watch them go inward, you know, heads swimming with questions. Oh, God, is he one of them? Is he anti-science or is he an angry right-wing conspiracy cultist? And of course, being none of those things, I could set their minds at ease, but I don't. Because it's funny. Have a good day, I say. (laughs) Now, if you'll just hand over my oat milk and Impossible Burgers, I'll be on my way. Thank you. And I drive my little Prius home, (laughs) listening to angry punk rock music because I'm so rebellious. But I am. I'm a Christian, raised by Christians, the, the product of a Christian upbringing and a Christian environment. And this means 
Unlike many of my peers, I have survived my own deconstruction, which I know is a divisive word. It's a, a trigger word or whatever it is that we're saying these days. So that's tough for me as your guest speaker this morning. They didn't bring me in to talk about Jesus blessing the children or something like that. So th this is divisive stuff. I understand that. In fact, at one point near the end here, I'm going to string together the words affluent white millennial not once but twice. So get ready for that. And then on top of that, there's what I'm told is the often dry, sarcastic way that I talk. And while I would say that most people find it charming, others disagree, and I'm lying. So I've tucked into this morning's sermon a couple of palate cleansers. These are going to really help you. They're going to lighten the mood. I'll give you one here in just a minute and then another near the end in case I'm losing you at that point. See, I wrote a, a book with a not-so-subtle title called Death to Deconstruction. And that's kind of like a Rorschach test, the title. How does it make you feel to hear those three words, death to deconstruction? Do you finally, or do you think finally, someone's sticking it to the progressive pseudo-spiritualists and their watered-down, deconstructed false religion? Or do you think death to deconstruction, deconstruction saved my life. Isn't deconstruction necessary? Or do you think, what the heck is deconstruction? I didn't come up with a title like death to deconstruction, oblivious to the inevitable, obvious questions and pushback. But one thing that I've seen in all of this conversation is a common recurring motif. Young or old, deconstructed or orthodox, either side of the socio-political aisle, every generation feels like the world is unraveling. I do, and so did my parents, and so did their parents. I was a kid during the emergence of the AIDS crisis and the war on drugs in the 80s, the satanic panic, fear around art and culture and politics, but before that there had already been the Manson family murders in 1969 and The Exorcist in 1973, the publication of the Satanic Bible by Random House and Anton LaVey. There'd been Woodstock and Beat Poets and uproar over civil rights activism in the 60s. There'd been Jazz and Elvis in the 50s. Heck, the, the ban on interracial marriage in California didn't end until 1948. And before that, there were Nazis and A-bombs and death camps. And before any of that, there had already been civil war and colonization and manifest destiny and musket smoke and cannonballs and wholesale slaughter of indigenous people. And before any of that, there had already been the Black Plague and Iron Maidens and medieval torture chambers. And long before that, there were Greek pederasts as political leaders and Roman emperors who fed children to lions. There were temple prostitutes and religious orgies, and the world has always been insane. So here are some cows that have been shampooed and blow-dried. both of them looking directly at the camera, which you're not supposed to do. I don't know the circumstances of the shampooing or the blow drying. I just know I like what I see. That's palate cleanser number one. It's nice, right? After all that stuff about temple prostitutes and religious orgies, cows, okay. Every generation faces unique issues of cultural evolution that challenge our perception of any shared ideology or, or any sense of common morality and makes us wonder if what we believe about the world really makes any sense at all. 
Because crawling backward down the ideological timeline of the civilized world, some things change and some things don't. The political right, for example, paints a picture of a once glorious moral utopia sliding hopelessly into ethical disrepair on the runaway nightmare train of progressivism. But hundreds of years ago, the sex ethics of some of the biggest cultural hubs in the greatest empires of the world would make America in 2023 look like an episode of The Dick Van Dyke Show. And cultural moral panic just sort of slides from side to side, from the right to the left and back again, depending on the era. So for example, when I was a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s, fundamentalism was taken for granted as an inherently conservative value. Conservatives, as we understood them, were the moral police. They were the bullies or the watchdogs of cultural morality. They held the rule book, they enforced it. Disagreeing with them wasn't just another perspective, it was objectively morally wrong, and they were unwilling to hear otherwise. We don't care about your worldview or your religious views or your upbringing or your culture. You must yield to our ideology and politics and education and culture and the arts. And anyone who doesn't use our approved words must be punished. Any art that sins against our moral paradigm must be vanquished. The artist must be silenced. The art must be censored. We are only doing what's right for everyone. But today, progressivism is now the moral police, the watchdogs of cultural morality. They hold the rule book and they enforce the rule book and the enforcement looks exactly the same, just with a different uniform. And then, through all of that, with all of that constantly unfolding across the passage of time and throughout oscillating epics of cultural evolution and devolution, through all that journeys the disciple of Jesus. That's us. It is now, as it ever was, a resistance movement of sorts against the gravitational pull of digital narcissism and cynicism and outrage. A narrow road that is neither the right nor the left, not a war against the culture and not an assimilation into it. There is only the way, faithfulness to the way as an act of rebellion. If you have a Bible on hand, go ahead and open to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John, chapter 15. Years ago, when, at least in my lifetime, the first rumblings of panic over people bailing out on Christianity, Jesus dropouts, when that kind of panic first rippled through American evangelicalism, I remember reading something where the author of an article or a blog or a sermon had worried that the deconversion moment has become the new conversion moment. Deconversion, apparently, had become the new conversion. That just as so many of us had at some point stood huddled under the concert lighting of youth camps and festivals, high on teenage angst, our brains soupy with hormones, we cried and we raised our hand, we cried and we raised our hands in worship and we said, I accept Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. Well now, these teenagers had become 20-somethings and 30-somethings, and they were knocking on 40 and fed up with the lunacy of suffering and evil and religious hypocrisy and nationalism, and a Bible that they had been clobbered with rather than being taught how to read and understand. They were having a new, teary-eyed, emotional conversion moment out of the brittle husk of the American civil Christian religion and into something else. Maybe they'd be agnostic. 
the thrill of ambiguity, embracing no answers over firm ones. Or maybe they'd go full atheist. What better way to stick it to God than by erasing him altogether? Or maybe not. Maybe they'd drift down the buffet aisles of spirituality light and make their own plates, a small serving of Buddhism, a few slices of Christian mysticism with no crust, some Hindu philosophy as dressing served up on a hearty bed of American progressivism. But anyway you slice it, they are out. Ex-vangelical, we liked to say, deconstructed, post-youth group. Take that, mom and dad. Take that, Pastor Evan. Now, I would never presume to know what kinds of doubts and, and dark nights of second-guessing and spiritual cold feet have been like for any of you guys, let alone every Christian in this room, but each and every one of us who sets out to follow Jesus has had them, the, the doubts, the dark nights, and we will have them again. Brennan Manning talked about moments like these, seasons of doubt and despair, in his memoir, a book called All is Grace. Now Manning, if you're not familiar, was a prolific author and speaker whose favorite subject was easily the scandalous love of Jesus. His mantra had become over the years, God loves you exactly as you are, not as you should be. And in different seasons of his life, Manning had been a Catholic priest. He transported water via donkey for poor villagers. He worked as a mason's assistant and a dishwasher in France. He was imprisoned by choice, apparently, in Switzerland. And he spent six months in a remote cave somewhere in the Zaragoza desert. And though his memoir touches a little bit on some of those things, not all of them, it's about something else, mostly. His life story, one could easily read the entirety of the memoir as the tragedy of alcoholism. So you read about this guy who is revered in many a Christian circle and confronting the bare ugly facts of Manning's struggle with his addiction, his lies, quite frankly, his screw-ups and failures, one could interpret his life as a failure his faith and his ministry as both facades and conclude from them that he was a fraud. Or, you know, one could lean full tilt into the weight of the book's title, All is Grace, and, and allow the brilliant love of Jesus to become a kind of cleansing beam that clears away Brennan Manning's sin and deception so that all truly does become grace. Who cares how badly he failed because all is grace? Or... Maybe there's truth in both things, that he was a failure, and to some degree, the work he did was disingenuous, but in the same way, all is grace. And maybe we already know that both things coexist concurrently, which finally brings us to John 15. Now, John 15 is the passage in which James, Jesus famously promises again and again and again, I am the vine, you are the branches. You know the story, remain in me, Jesus keeps saying again and again and again. The secret, apparently, the truth, the power is in proximity, in intimacy, in closeness. Stay with Jesus, keep him before your thoughts, hold him in your heart, turn his words over in your head, read them at dawn and at dusk, dusk, sit before Jesus in conversation, in reflection, in beholding, in practicing the presence of God. Be with Jesus. Abide in the vine. Remain in him. 
But after all that stuff about vines and branches, Jesus goes on. So look at John 15, beginning with verse 18. Jesus says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, Jesus says. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father, but this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, one of Jesus' terms for the Spirit of God, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And then, listen to this, chapter 16, verse 1. He brings it home with these words. All this, meaning all of that, the vine, the abiding, the warnings, the inevitability of persecution or hatred or hardship, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Abiding in the vine is more than the first priority of discipleship. It is the armor against the arrows of deconstruction and deconversion. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Meaning, Jesus knew that we might. One reason is because he had been there before us, walking the road of faithfulness when he was tempted to do otherwise. He went deeper into faithfulness before us to show us how it's done. And he gave us the secret of resolve before the inevitability of our deconversion moments, our seasons of doubt and despair. And the secret was and is, remain in me. We do that in a world that seems as if it's going insane. The world has always been a crazy place, dark and twisted and broken with all its power mongering and jockeying for position and moral high ground, the swinging pendulum of fundamentalism, right, left, right, left. And against this backdrop, everyone on the journey of discipleship, young and old, mature, immature, has and will arrive at junctions forking out to two options, abandon faith or wade deeper into the wild waters of more faithfulness still. The road of discipleship though straight and narrow, as we like to say, is perilous. Anyone who follows Jesus knows this. There are seasons where we walk upright and we run and we throw our heads back and bask in the all-warming glory of amazing grace. And there are seasons where we fall and fail and crawl and scramble and teeter and we quit and we come back and we cheat and we lie and we fight and we hate and we start over again. In uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan imagines the road of discipleship lined with monsters and archers and liars and pitfalls and swamps, meaning when we follow Jesus, we go forward and then backward and then forward again, and we get hurt and we get misled and we get broken, we seek healing, we get hurt, we hurt other people. But along that dangerous, narrow road, there are no walls. You are not 
trapped, not confined to following Jesus. You either walk the road or you do not. There are no off-ramps because one can simply abandon the road at any time and at any point in the journey, and many do. You know this already. And even though there are no off-ramps, there are what I like to think of as deconversion moments, instances or even, you know, prolonged seasons of doubt and despair and frustration and disillusionment and suffering, but of lucidity where, where you are in your right mind and you understand that things are breaking down, but you do not know what to do with it. When the trials of the road become, we think, too much to bear, and we consider leaving the road altogether. We pause where we are, and we lift one leg, and we let one foot hover above the ground just to the right of the road, and we ask ourselves, what if I quit walking it? In Brennan Manning's memoir, he remembers one of those deconversion moments that came when he least expected it. He had been living amongst the poor in rural France, shoveling manure, washing dishes, and bringing water to villages, villagers on a donkey's back. And it was in that season what seemed like great spiritual uh, revelry and glory and, and joy. In that season, in prayer one evening, in a chapel by himself, the Spirit of God exposed his hidden selfishness. And he was so discouraged that he was devastated. I saw my life as vitiated by pride, he wrote, by the inordinate desire to be liked and loved and approved and applauded and accepted. My motives were peeled away to reveal complete self-centered yuck. I thought maybe I had grown beyond it or out of it, but I hadn't. And he went on to confess, and I quote, I felt like my life was a waste. I determined to commit spiritual suicide, cut myself off from God and the church and my brothers and turn my back on it all. And it was then in one of his most vivid deconversion moments when the consideration to leave it all behind was clearly before him that another priest found Brennan in the chapel as this priest entered and Brennan was leaving and asked him what had happened. Brennan told this other priest everything and the other priest said this, and I quote, you are on the threshold of receiving the greatest grace of your life. You are discovering what it means to be poor in spirit. Brother Brenning, it's okay not to be okay. And so, Brennan Manning looks down at his hovering foot and then returns it to the narrow road and takes another painful step forward. But if you go on and read the rest of the story, there would be a lot more falling before it was all over. There would be more deconversion moments, even more intense, more painful than that one. But that one, that night in the chapel in France, had been repurposed for a new conversion. He had not quit. He could have, but he didn't. And the not quitting that night became a new resolve that wasn't there before, and his discipleship was renewed and refreshed in a way it would not have been had it not been for the deconversion moment. Now, depending on where you're sitting, many American Christians have begun to feel as if things are breaking down. American evangelicalism seems to be toppling beneath the weight of its own politicization. The stragglers are making for new camps on the outskirts of orthodoxy and the historic Christian tradition. The youth group kids have grown up and are deconstructing. The conservatives are going liberal and the progressives are becoming fundamentalists. 
The Calvinists have given up determinism. The Baptists are going Catholic. The megachurch conglomerates are falling to sex scandals and embezzlement. The Christian influencers are being canceled. It's bad out there. So here's a baby cow that has been shampooed and blow-dried. Wow, the audible, oh, did you hear that? That was beautiful. Yeah. You think twice about eating this guy, won't you? Look at that. <laughs> That's your second palate cleanser. Regroup. Regroup, people. My point is that maybe it seems as if everything is uniquely falling apart in some unprecedented way. It does to me. But it's always been like this. And maybe it feels to you as if the Christian machine is breaking down. But we, I think, have to constantly remind ourselves and one another that this movement is much bigger than a tiny demographic in one place at one time. In his book, After Doubt, Professor A.J. Swoboda recognizes the irony of the fact that, statistically speaking anyway, the, the quintessential deconstructionist inevitably falls victim to the very thing they most violently critique. He writes, if I, a white Christian male, were to take elements of someone else's culture and use them for my own purposes, they would call it cultural appropriation. But if I take the ancient writings of the Bible and change them to fit my purposes with no regard for the intent with which they were written, they call me enlightened and evolved. How could this be? He goes on to say, for every millennial affluent white college student who is choosing to deconstruct their Christian faith, there are five non-white people with less privilege in this world who are finding in the Bible the greatest message one could ever imagine. And that's not just inspirational fluff. There are actually numbers to back this up. So in, in reports published as recently as 2022, Dr. Gina Zerlo, who's a historian, a sociologist, a demographer, she demonstrated that her research indicates that 67% of the world's Christians live in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Oceania. The largest share of those Christians live in Africa, and the majority of them are women. The median age of Christians in Sub-Saharan Africa is just 19. Now, here's why this matters. Maybe sometimes, from where you sit, from where I sit, it feels as if the historic Christian movement is being stripped for parts by jaded American ex-evangelicals, but it simply isn't true. Maybe it seems as if Christianity has been run into the ground by American scandal and marred beyond repair by televangelists and politicians, but it hasn't. Because the average Christian in the world is not represented by American politicians or by some cynical white West Code post-Christian podcaster. The average Christian is a teenage girl in Nigeria. The same Christian movement from 2,000 years ago is thriving all over the world Though always complicated and always imperfect, it remains undefeated by the cynicism and corruption that you and I take for granted. And the hilarious irony is that a majority white affluent Western demographic has committed to such a vocal critique of a movement founded by and primarily sustained by non-white people who had and have no affluence or privilege to speak of. We belong to something bigger than us, bigger than this room, this church, something ancient and beautiful, broken and imperfect though it may be. 
And we need to come back to this space week in and week out and look around a room full of broken, imperfect people with their hands outstretched to God, singing, praying, listening, and learning, and remember the breadth and the beauty of the imperfect family of God, so beloved by Jesus that he called it his bride. And we say to one another in our mornings of joyous worship and in our dark nights of lonely faithlessness, I am not alone in this. I belong to a family, imperfect though we may be. Ours is a way of life, a kingdom that grows the world over for thousands of years, and I will walk this road with my brothers and sisters. When a group of people with a shared problem and purpose come together, they can learn with one another in service to a cause, a master, how to master themselves in the name of something bigger than themselves. And I think that maybe all of our big deconversion moments are actually just invitations to move deeper into the beautiful and terrifying storm of God's love and grace. When we could have quit, but we didn't. And the not quitting becomes a new resolve that wasn't there before. The next season of discipleship through the crucible of our often painful formation as we navigate the chaos of life in a broken world. Jesus himself had deconversion moments when the devil came to Jesus and the Lord himself was tempted to throw it all away, tempted to relinquish his trust in the Father, tempted to pervert the scriptures, tempted by power or glory. And tempted though he was, Jesus moved through each opportunity to abandon ship past the deconstruction and the deconversion, and deeper into the heart of knowing God through obedient faithfulness. Deconversion as the new conversion. Why, I wonder, do we vilify our dark nights of being romanced by doubt and despair, deconversion, as if they were scandals indicative of spiritual ineptitude? Doesn't every apprentice know that as the journey toward mastery moves forward, it gets harder, not easier? Don't they assume that each new test comes to them with increasing levels of complexity and, and that though their maturing apprenticeship equips and qualifies them for the task, it does not guarantee their victory? So instead, the kung fu student goes for the next belt knowing they might fail. The boxer faces the next ranked contender, knowing they could be knocked out. The plumber sets out to repair the pipe without their teacher's assistance, praying that they don't ruin the sink. The tattoo artist dabs the flesh with alcohol, takes a deep breath, and says, God, I hope I don't screw up this guy's shoulder. The young woman sits down at the harp again and again and again, through all the wrong notes and broken calluses and just keeps playing. And a song, once clumsy, becomes more beautiful with each performance. We often arrive on the shores of deconversion, tossed by the often stormy sea of discipleship and life itself, and we find ourselves laid bare as frauds. And we discover that what we thought was spiritual superpower was selfish or petty, or insincere. 
And in some cases, in our seasons of doubt and deconstruction, we may be guilty of all manner of foolishness. I assume we are because we're people. We also arrive to the dark place, however, in pain. And pain is pain. We have been hurt, and stands the reason we've done plenty of hurting ourselves. And if you haven't yet, you will. And if you have, you probably will again. So there is often immaturity and self-interest in something like deconstruction, but that does not delegitimize our frailty or weakness or suffering. And this is also why, at the very crossroads of deconversion, Jesus appears to invite us to go deeper still. The crucible of doubt becoming the invitation to greater healing and wholeness and salvation. Now, obviously, I have no idea where you're at or where you've been. I don't know if you're between these dark nights or just beyond one or in the midst of one or on the precipice of another. I don't know. But I know that they appear before us all along the narrow road of faith. And knowing that, knowing that each and every person in this room who follows Jesus has and will endure despair and doubt, you can look around a room like this one and enjoy the simple, beautiful reality that we're still here. I have often thought of church affectionately almost like a basement recovery program dedicated to faithfulness as an act of rebellion against what is. When addicts shuffle into musty old rooms, sipping bad coffee from styrofoam cups, reminding one another the mantra, keep coming back, it works, it works if you work it. Because they have learned the truth about togetherness as the venue for a faithful life of integrity. When they say it works, they do not mean here is the infallible secret of victory over addiction. Instead, I think what they mean is, if we don't give up on one another and ourselves and all this, the movement to which we belong, and if we remain faithful, then we can do this together. All of us have and will arrive at our own moments between deconversion and deeper faith. So what made the difference for Brennan Manning that night in that chapel in France when he almost quit but didn't? What made the difference? The difference was another disciple of Jesus, one that he called brother, stepped in and asked him what happened, listened, and then spoke truth into his life. You are on the threshold of receiving the greatest grace of your life. It's okay not to be okay. In other words, what happened to Brennan Manning was church. The church is where we work out our salvation with fear and trembling over and against the cynicism and tumult of the world where we learn and relearn orthodoxy or right belief, what has been most precious to disciples of Jesus throughout the world for hundreds of years, so that we can sing these songs and understand what they mean in our hearts, whether we feel them or not, so that we can look to something like the Apostles' Creed without squirming or shame and say, yes, I believe, I choose to believe over and against it all, I believe, and we're still here. I will walk in truth when my heart sings and when my heart is breaking. Down the helter-skelter spiral of cultural insanity and tribal warfare, across the stormy seas of discipleship and doubt, we can beckon one another into greater faithfulness or 
you can stand against the wind and rain all alone, your tired legs shaking, ready to give up, no one to hold you up, which, I wonder, leads to greater faithfulness. Greater faithfulness, not a global political superpower, but a rabble of broken men and women rescued by the scandal of love and who keep coming back. If you want to play the harp, you've got to stick with it. Even and especially when the journey gets tough and when you feel lonely, when you start to wonder if it's worth it at all. And the music of our lives and our love and our faithfulness becomes a great chorus of defiance against a world hell-bent on deconversion and death. So ask. God is pretty secure. He can handle your questions. Russell, you're invited to do that. Doubt and grieve and hurt and fight. But do it here. Other people are doing it too. They're doing it side by side concurrently and they will do it again. And don't give up. We fall, we get up, we keep walking the road constantly on the precipice of the greatest grace of our lives. Amen, Lord Jesus. Give us grace for faithfulness now and forever. Amen. Let me pray and ask God's Spirit to come and imbue us with a new sense of faithfulness. Father, I recognize that I'm just a visitor. I have no idea the stories represented in this room and the depth of joy or pain. I don't know deeply the stories that have been brought into a room like this and on a morning like this, but I do know that it stands to reason that there is both joy and suffering and there is both committed faithfulness and ragged despair represented in a room like this. That, to me, is church. Would you, by your Spirit, empower us to act as the presence of God to our brothers and sisters in both our seasons of joyful faithfulness and resolve and in our seasons of doubt and despair and would you teach us to understand both as legitimate representations of what it means to follow Jesus would you learn to show us grace without compromise that we could see and hold one another in pain and in doubt while also resolved to the truth of Jesus, committed to the truth of Jesus. These are not easy things to do, God, and we know that. And there are people in this room who have been following Jesus much longer than I have and who know much more than I do about it. 
Would you teach us to walk with one another, to honor one another's pain and joy while holding fast to the truth? I had this sense, I could be wrong, um, this could be just me, but I had this sense from, I think, maybe God's spirit. There's a young man here, I saw a young man with blonde hair who was uh, walking through a particularly painful season of doubt. And I saw um, this young man who is, is, is now, you know, um, in maybe adulthood or even early adulthood, but I saw him become before Jesus a small child who was uh, just tear-streaked face, screaming in agony, and not a tantrum, not something that was illegitimate or selfish, but a legit pain and suffering. And I saw Jesus lift this young man into his arms the way a good father cradles a crying child and held him to his chest, and he could hear the heartbeat of God. And Jesus did not rush to pat answers or spiritual platitudes. And there was no, at least not in in what I saw, no kind of simple phrase that cut through all the doubt and all the pain. There was just the holding, which I felt was an acknowledgement of the legitimacy of that pain. So if that lands with someone here, if it's not just me, then my encouragement is that to lean against the, the chest of Jesus, of God, and be honest about that pain and with God, not just talking about God and not just talking to God, but a shared honesty with God. And it stands to reason that could be more than one person, and maybe it summarizes the way a lot of us feel this morning. I have no idea, but my prayer for this family is the full spectrum of faithfulness by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to walk together faithfully and to hold one another up as we go. In the name of Jesus the King who goes before us, amen.